Beyond the Ranch with Jay Gannon from Find the Ranch. Welcome back to Beyond the Wrench. My name is Jay Gannon, and I am your host. Before we get started with the podcast, wanted to announce our weekly winner of the higher or lower game in our Wrenchway app. And that winner was Matt Weebly with a high score of 40. Congratulations, Matt. With that, you win a $100 Amazon gift card, which was sponsored by our friends at Wheeltime. Uh, Wheeltime's a great company. We work closely with Jill Gingrich and her team and uh, just a lot of really, really good people. So check them out. Unfortunately, Matt did not turn over the Queen of Hearts, so the pot rises yet again to $1,800, really starting to get into uh, some really, really good significant money. One thing to mention prior to diving into the details of the podcast is one of the things we do here at Wrenchway, and that is to help technicians find great places to work. If you think your shop is a top shop, we want to hear from you. Wrenchway Top Shops pages are like resumes for shops. They share all the details technicians want to know before they apply, such as compensation ranges for all levels, photos and videos of the service area, videos of technicians and managers really to give a feel of what it's like to work there and who you'll be working with, and different facts about the work environment, career development, and hiring process. There's a bunch of other stuff on there as well, some really, really nice ways to be able to attract technicians uh, to your shop. So if you want to become a Wrenchway Top Shop, visit Wrenchway.com, contact us, and we've got a whole bunch of information out there to fill you in on everything that we do. As for this week's episode, I was able to have Seth Thorson join me. Uh, for those of you that don't know Seth, he's got a an abundance of involvement in the aftermarket business, and it was a real pleasure to have him on. He's an extremely smart person and really, really enjoyed my time with him. What we really focused on was onboarding and how a lot of shops don't do onboarding right or at all. And Seth is an expert at it. Seth is really, really good at it. And it does, the conversation does evolve to some other process stuff too, right? How you take care of your team in the shop and and really how you're able to really have everything structured and, and run a really nice business. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode and look forward to talking to you next week. On today's episode, I am really happy to have Seth Thorson join me. For those of you that don't know Seth, you're about to learn a lot. Seth has a lot of things going on, very influential in the aftermarket industry and the independent side. But a lot of what we're going to talk about today not only applies to any type of shop, but really any type of business. I think uh, a lot of his background is is really helpful to anybody out there running a business. So welcome, Seth. Really, really happy to have you. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me this morning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's dive into your background first. You've got a, a pretty fascinating background in the, all of the stuff that you've got going on. But let's start with how you got into the the industry in the first place. When when you're growing up in, in, in Minnesota, assuming you grew up in Minnesota, right? I did grow up in Minnesota. I moved around right. a little bit, but I grew up in Minnesota. I um, was working on, you know, snowmobiles and stuff as a kid. My parents said, well, you can have a snowmobile if you buy one with your own money. So 
one thing you can afford as a 14 year old kid is a pile of uh, garbage that you have to learn how to fix. So, you know, I bought a pile of garbage that I had to learn how to fix. So I got into working on stuff and I come from a family of engineers. My dad, my brother, they're all in. I'm the one that decided to not go the college route and I went to technical school. So I went to UTI tech school and got my degree there, graduated towards the top of my class at UTI there. BMW came to me and said, Hey, we got a program in Florida. I'm a 19 year old kid at this point. I'm like, Oh, sure. Florida sounds fun. So moved down to Florida and six or eight months of school for BMW in Florida. The great thing with the BMW step program, you come out almost a BMW master tech. Unfortunately, they don't guarantee job placement anywhere near your home. So off to Michigan, I went at 20 years old, started working for a dealership on Michigan. The dealership learned a lot, did a lot of top troubleshooting, things like that. Ultimately the dealership life wasn't for me. I left, went to an independent store, Loved the independent, learned a lot from the, the owner that was there. And then somebody in my hometown contacted me. There was a gentleman selling a shop and with a five to seven year transfer plan. And there was an option to come there and, and buy the shop. So I came back and bought the shop in Minnesota, completely bottom on 2012. We took the shop that was doing $500,000 by 200, by 2012, we were doing 1.2 by 2021. Now we're doing 2.8 of that store. And then we've added two other facilities. So we had one two years ago that's now a $1.4, $1.5 million store in two years. We had a third one this year and we have a fourth one coming online. So that's kind of my background in shop ownership. As far as the technical background, I've maintained my BMW technician mindset still. I run a BMW tech support group called LMV Bavarian. We do BMW technical support for about 300 shops all over the country. So they can log on, get one-on-one help support, find quick fixes to BMWs. We do training for them. And we're launching some Tesla training along the same lines. We've been deep into the Tesla repairs in my shop and overall in the market. So the Tesla stuff is coming. I'm a NASDAQ board member. And we're the ones responsible for obviously getting Tesla a table and toolbox and all sorts of things released. So that's my background in, in five <laughs> minutes or less. <laughs> yeah. So just a few things in, in, in my life. A couple questions. Where did you come up with the name for that? Which for the the technical line? What do you what's the name oh, of it again? Uh, LMV Bavarian. So luxury motor vehicles. Luxury motor vehicles. Yep. And what's the Bavarian part? Because you can't use BMW's name in anything without getting sued. So <laughs> got to come up with something. It, it worked well. My second question is, which UTI campus did you go to? So I went to Chicago. Was it when it was in Glendale Heights? It was in Glendale Heights at that point. Yep. Century had a, a program, a decent program here in Minnesota, which has gotten much, much stronger. So we send a lot of kids to Century, which is the local Minnesota program here. But yes, I went to, I did go out to UTI. I got one tech from UTI. I got three or four techs from our local program. We created, uh, me and my wife created the Thorson Endowment Fund. And so we have an adult scholarship at Century right now. Good so we do you. pluck a lot of kids there because we kind of stuck our money, our, our money where our mouth was and said, we believe so much in the technical trades that we're going to fund a scholarship endowment. I love that. Love that. What, company, uh, so. what year did you graduate from UTI? I graduated from UTI in 2000. So I was down there at about the same time. I graduated <laughs> from that same campus in 2000. I guess it was probably a little later. So 2002, I want to say. So I was I was down in the the Glendale Heights. I think I lived over by Schomburg and and drove over that way with lived with I think 
two or three roommates when I was down there. And, and interesting experience going from small town Wisconsin to that, you know, like that, it, it, uh, it was different. That was my same experience, right? I grew up on 25 acres on a small farm and, you know, I milked some cows sometimes. I did all sorts of weird jobs as a kid. But yeah, it was different going down to Chicago. I lived in Arlington Heights. Actually, I worked for, if you were in Schaumburg, off the main drag there, Gulf Road and, and Wooddale there. I worked yep. for uh, Woodfield Motorsports. Oh, cool. Really? Yep. Small world. Did not know yep. any of this prior to, to, <laughs> to this. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. That's very cool. So as you're growing this business, both businesses, really, I mean, you've got now multiple locations of independent shop. You've got the tech line, just a whole bunch of stuff going on. You're very involved with the, the just the general aftermarket community as well. And I think getting even more so, it feels like. It feels like you're really ingrained in kind of the fabric of everything that is the automotive aftermarket. And so the reason and really what what triggered our conversation on the podcast today was an article that was written about you and, and your operation. I believe it was the Midwest Auto Care Association, their, their magazine that had done a piece on you about your onboarding, right? Yep. Yeah, that we did an onboarding piece because I had taught a class for Beamers, which is independent BMW repair group. I had taught an onboarding class for, for them. And so then Cherry reached out to me from Milwaukee and said, hey, you know, we want to do an article more in depth on, on this because we think more people need to see this than just that small group that I had done a presentation for. Yeah, and I, so this, the funny part about that article is that's been uh, folded open to the title page of that on my the desk at my home office for whenever it came out, probably two, three months ago. And it's one that I've read probably three or four times. Still don't comprehend, I think, everything that you put in there. Or I comprehend it, but I think just being able to read through it multiple times and understanding your process behind it, I think in reading it, I can get maybe where that engineering background comes from, right? You've almost engineered this onboarding process and it's really fun to have you, you know, you were just a part of tech mission and seeing kind of how, uh, how your brain works with this stuff is fascinating to me because some of this stuff is the stuff that I suck at. So trying to pick your brain and understand not only onboarding process, but general business practices, how you run your operation and, and really, I think you're unique in that regard because not not all independent shops run like you, right? Like I, I think you you run a little bit differently than most. Is that fair to assume? Yeah, it's some of that's bred on necessity from growth. I am probably not so good at those fine details as you think I am. I read a book that kind of changed my perspective called Rocket Fuel, which I have comes not out, read it yet. Yes, Rocket Fuel, which comes out of kind of traction, an EOS type principles really change our dynamics. I had a really good integrator in my company. I wasn't using him in the right way. And we, he was one of my managers and we'd promote him to, you know, run the, the stores and we'd butt heads all the time. Cause he, I do things a different way than he does things. And we were re- always frustrated with each other. And all of a sudden I read that book and I'm like, okay, you got to read this book next. And then we got to sit down and figure this out. And his brain works in a much different way than mine. I'm really, really high on the visionary scale. And so I have ideas, but I fail to implement them. I fail to get the small details done where Daniel, my, who's my CEO, he gets things done. He nails them down. I give him say, hey, here's my dream for this onboarding process. 
I don't know where to start, but this is what I want done because we're having a problem. And he will go research softwares and he tested five or six softwares and we, we, and then he'd show me what he tested. And I'm like, well, I don't like that one. I don't like that one. Well, this one might work and this one's in our budget and let's try this. And we started building out this process, right? And as we started building the onboarding out, there was a lot of details. And so then it got harder and harder for him to, it, it basically was a full-time job. And I need him to do $200 an hour work, not $20 an hour work that it takes to build out this micro onboarding. So then we went out and found a college student that was looking for some part-time work and summer jobs. And we hired this college student to work under Daniel and she knocked out a ton of the onboarding stuff and just started writing modules and we'd give her the outlines and she'd put them in and we'd check them and cross-check them. And so we started outsourcing some of that, that work to get the manual done as we as we saw fit. I mean, we probably went through three revisions of of this thing, and really, it, it's it's been a process, but it really really helps us get people on in the right way. And and so walk us through this process a little bit because in the article, one of the one of the core things that you talk about is the use of a system in order to, and when I say a system, a software to be able to kind of track this and and manage it really. Did it start with just writing out the processes first and then you got the software to where you're, you're starting to, I don't know, be able to build out the processes in the software or did, was it the opposite? Yeah, no, we, we had a lot of written processes, but we learned that having paper wasn't the best way. And so we, we had written processes for a long time. I had another manager that worked for me that her big thing was written over verbal communication. So, and she worked for me for a while and she was great, but her thing was, it has to be written down. And so she helped create things. I find the best people to write the processes are the people that are actually doing the work. Yes. So a lot of times we have them write their process and we give them a deadline on a time to write it. And then we check in and make sure it meets our vision and, and we give it some test time and then it becomes essentially law. And then we write our digital training off of that. But what we found is as we're growing, right, our porters, we hire a lot of shop porters and we treat them probably different than most shops that we don't call them the, the shop B word and all the other things that shops call these guys. We make them integral parts of our team. And three, the problem is our porters continually move up. One of them is on a manager track at 21 years old. He should be one of our next door managers. Another one went to tech school that we paid for tuition. Another one is one of our junior service writers. So the problem is we've lost three porters. And so we're backfilling these porters all the time. And we had to come up with a system. Okay, how do you get a porter to a service writer? How do you get a porter to a technician? How do you give them a career path after they do this entry level and go, man, I'm in college, but I really love what I'm doing. Maybe I'm just going to drop out of college and continue doing this, but I have to give them some kind of career path and training. And so that's where we really came up with this online training. Cause I have a lot of Gen Z and Gen Y employees. And so I need a virtual training platform that can say, okay, complete these trainings. And, and then you can look at moving up. And so we'll give them some service writer training, some technician training, and they can run through these modules. And then also we worked really hard saying, okay, before you can leave this position, I need you to document all the things you're doing because you're doing a great job as a porter. So our porter created a video and we filmed in on how they take out the trash, how they clean, how they mop the floor, how they clean out a floor flammable trap. All these things are documented. 
Wow. So maybe to clarify one thing, I think you said something that I don't think is common with an independent shop, which is that you have a porter. Just explain what a porter is in an independent shop, as because a, a porter might be a little bit different in a dealership environment. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm I'm curious as to what a porter is in your company. So a porter in our company helps clean the shop, shop cleanliness. They run and get parts. They will drive a client. They will pick up a client. They may run and get tires. They may run and do our concierge pickup and drop off that we do. So they may Uber to a customer's house, grab the car and drive it back and then drive the customer's car back when we're done and Uber back. Our porters are drivers slash maintenance people, but they will help you know, maintain some shop equipment. They may test drive a car for a tech. They may clean the shop. They have a, a list of all sorts of duties, but shop cleanliness is probably one of their biggest things. I love that. So that has become very, at, at the level of process that you've got at this point, that's become really foundational to your entire operation, right? Like it has become an integral piece of what you do every day. Yeah, the porter position has at our big shop. Our smaller shops don't really have a porter, but when you get to a certain size, you you generally need that extra person. So, and then they will, you know, if there's something another shop needs run and we have a free porter, they'll coordinate manager to manager to get that person okay. over to that hey, other store if needed. How does a porter know what to do? Is it is it assigned by a manager or is it is it they've got a task list and they've got to finish that task list by the end of the day? So they have a task list, but a lot of it is on the trainual. So when they take trainual, they'll learn what their daily duties are. They'll learn what their weekly duties are. And if they have a question, they can obviously log back in their trainual and, and take a look at what they're what they're missing. And so to revisit that from earlier in our conversation, trainual is the software that you're using, you talked about it in pretty great detail in this article that was out with Midwest Auto Care Association. Yep. Ex- explain what Trainual is for those of the folks that are listening that don't know. Sure. So Trainual is just an open platform that allows you to build out your LMS. And when we say LMS, LMS stands for Learning Management System. So it's something you're going to see at McDonald's. It's all, you're saying you're going to see at all these big corporations. We generally don't use it in our industry. Um, I'm probably one of the first that did it. We have a lot of other people that have contacted me. I know probably at least 30 or 40 other shops going down this process, right? Of, of looking how they implement this and how they get onboarding done in a, in a better way. Some guys use way we do, which is another way way we do tends to be more process oriented than training oriented. So way we do is more process built depends on what you're doing. Our LMS, you know, the, some of the keys to it, we have a lot of videos in there. We have a lot of gifts that, you know, kids love and, and the young people love. And, it, you know, you completed this and the big exploding pl- applause, just things that it makes it engaging to go through it. We don't want a long, boring day. Right. But so that's what our trainual does. There's other softwares. Trainual seems to be well priced for what our industry needs because it's affordable. It's customizable, but you are going to have to put in some work to do it. I probably say we have thousands of hours into building ours out. But it's those thousands of hours that end up being uh, really what you build off of moving forward, right? Like you, yep. when you set that foundation, you have a solid foundation to build off of. Then, yes, yeah. Then it's done, and we don't have to do it again. Yeah, you know, the, I, the biggest thing is it's it's done, it's completed. We don't have to go back through and do this. And when we hire somebody, we can onboard them in an effective way. So generally, for onboarding day one. You know, they're going to 
well, our onboarding starts well before trainual, right? Trainual is one part of it. Okay. So we have a new tech starting. So he's going to, he starts Monday. He'll get an email today that will tell him where to, where to park his first day, what door to come into and who he's going to meet. Because we've seen over the years too, and I've seen in other businesses all the time is somebody pulls up, the employee's nervous his first day. He doesn't even know where to park. So he parks somewhere. And then the first thing the manager he meets does, uh, yeah, you got to move, go move your car. You can't park there. What kind of interaction is that set up from day one? Right. He's like, uh, uh, I'm new. I don't know what to do. And all of a sudden I got to move my car. I don't know what I'm doing. So that's, we, we have it down to an email goes out. Where do you park? Who do you meet? What time to report? Then we give them a day one agenda that has from this time to this time, you're going to do, you're going to do two, three hours of trainual here, which allows our managers to go back and do what they need to do, which is, it's just great for them because they get a break. He can be on a trainual for a while. They can get some of their work done and then go back to training him and onboarding him all the way down to what time you're going to work with the foreman. You're going to shadow a different tech. You're going to do this. It's all laid out as far as what we're doing and how we're doing it, which makes it incredibly easy for the employee to learn as well as makes the onboarding really, really smooth. So we do a 30, 60, 90 day trainual is one part of it, but our 30 day, we have 30 day goals, 60 day goals, 90 day goals for techs, for porters, for service writers. We run through all these things and that's all part of our process. There's an email that goes out, like I said, the day before, there's an email that goes out to the team announcing the new hire. There's a Slack message that goes out and says, Hey, this is so-and-so they're going to join our team. Please give them a warm welcome. Everybody jumps in our, our team Slack channel and welcomes them so that they feel welcome so that they start to know other names. So these are all things that happen. Even the day of the offer letter, they get a personal email from me that the day the offer letter comes out, we send an email out. These are all form emails. So we have them, we copy paste them, boom, they go out. So it really helps make our onboarding process very concise. So how do you... Uh, let and me... it helps with ghosting. Yeah. Oh, and we'll we'll get to that part because I think that is a big, big deal right now. So going back from the time, so you go through the interview process, you're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to put an offer out to this person. They accept you as in your role as an owner, what happens for you then? Is it, is it, how are you documenting it from, from there on? So is it like a checklist where you go on, this is a new hire onboarding sheet, or is that all through trainual? How, how do you manage that part? So we have a new hire check does for like a technician, right? That's the most common hire that shops struggle with. Yeah. So we'll use the, we'll use the technician, especially given the, the topic of your, uh, of your company, but we'll use the tech. So I don't care if you're a 40 year tech, you're going to onboard. We're going to make sure a foreman signs you off on lifting a car. I don't assume that you know how to lift a car to our standards. A foreman's going to sign off on alignments. A foreman's going to sign off on torquing wheels because we torque wheels with a torque wrench. Yeah. So maybe that maybe that tech's never torqued wheels with a torque wrench. Maybe he's always used a torque stick or maybe he's count the ugga uggas out of his torque or out of his torque gun, <laughs> as they call it. You know, we have procedures that we enforce that is how our company does this. So we're going to sign them off on, on some of those things. We're going to sign them off that they know how to use basic scan tools that we use, factory scan tools. So they may not know how to use BMW Zista. They may not know how to use Mercedes Entry. So we're going to sign them off on these things. So there is a checklist. And these are the things they sign off on before they really go live, if you will, and working on cars. So it may be seven days before they put a wrench on a car. 
which takes some patience, especially if you happen to be short a person. You know, I think that's where a lot of shops process unfolds there is that if they've got business coming out of their ears and they look at that technician, especially from a service manager standpoint, they're wanting to get that person into to production as fast as possible, right? They want them producing hours. And I think that's where you do a, a, as good a job as anybody I've seen in any type of business at holding steady to your process, right? You, you make no exceptions to the process. I think you had a story that you shared with me where somebody maybe wasn't following the process and you made sure that that was reemphasized that you you need to follow the process, right? Yeah. I mean, and we had another one where we're slammed. We have 300 hours backlog, log, right? We hired another tech and all of a sudden three days in, he's pulling a transmission out of a car. And so we had that manager and that foreman in our office the next day going, come on, no. Now, you guys have a problem because you didn't follow the process. So number one, you now have a tech that's producing that now you're going to have to rein them back in. That's a hard thing to do. Now you're going to have to eat some crow and sit down with them and tell them that you guys screwed up and now you have to rein them back in because, well, they're like, well, we can just keep going. No, 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 no. You're going to pull them back in. We're going to do it right because anybody's raced cars or done any racing, right? You have to go slow to go fast. Right. And we've seen too many techs that come in and yes, you give them backlog of work because you're backed up. The the service department's backed up. You go, okay, this is pre-sold. Just do these jobs and they can do those fine. But then they turn 40, 50 hours, right? And they're getting bonuses and how your pay structure are. They're making money. And all of a sudden now the next two weeks you go, oh, but you got to write it up this way. You got to do this process. You got to do this process. All of a sudden they don't know how to do those processes. They slow down and start training 15, 20 hours a week. They get depressed and go, I can't do this job. I'm not very good. And I was making money before. Why can't I just go back to what I did? These these procedures, these things are dumb. I was making money before. And now you have a tech that doesn't want to do your procedures because he thinks he can just make money the other way. You set yourself up for a very bad situation long term. And so what we want to do is make sure that they learn everything that we do so that they can come out of the gates going fast and doing it the right way. And if they're not, we can pull them back right away and say, well, no, you're not doing the right things. We trained on this. Let's make sure we do the right things. So how hard is it? And and maybe a better question would be, how much of the explanation of the process are you talking, like if you're hiring a veteran technician and you're in that final stages of an interview where you're going to put an offer letter out, how much have you talked about how that works prior to them accepting the job? Right. So like, Hey, I know you've got, you've been in this for 20 years. We are going to go through all of this stuff. I mean, are you laying it out for them prior to them accepting the the job? We lay out some of it. It's hard to get how detailed we are with it, but we do lay out some of it. And I mean, Simon Sinek's book start with why is a, is another great read, right? It is. Yes. You know, so, you know, start with the end in mind, but start with why you want to get to the end. So we do explain why we do these things. And we do explain that, look, we know you can probably come in and produce, but we want you to be productive in our system. And there's a reason you're wanting to join our company. So our system generally works and produces great results, but we need you to understand to run our system. It's going to take some time and training. And if they're wanting to go out, this isn't for me and they want to bail, then, then I probably save myself a headache. Right. Right, because they're not going to follow the process regardless after that, right? Like, and, and they that, don't that person they don't, yeah. They don't believe in in what we do and why we do it. 
they're not a culture fit either. Then love that. Yeah, like that. That part right there is so good. That's solid gold because that's that's an area where I think. I see a lot of shops not making their correct choices. They're just trying to get as much work out the door as they can and not doing it in a way that creates a good culture and creates, you know, some of the quality control stuff, right? Because when you look at the process and maybe somebody's been doing something the wrong way for a, a while that you you can do some different things and and maybe they don't fit into the they don't fit into what you're doing. How important is that side of it, of making sure that they truly fit what you're doing? Yeah, that's it's a big, big part of it. So, you know, we did an exercise at our last quarterly meeting. So we have company quarterly meetings. So we like consistency. Our company quarterly meeting brought all three stores together in one, in one spot. We set up three cars that our foremen have inspected, and we do a, what we call a quality control audit. So there's two things we do at the quarter three meeting. QC audit. Every technician inspects every car. We rank their inspections to make sure that we are prioritizing things, one, twos, and threes in the exact same way across all our techs. Then we have our front end office people do check-in. Are they finding maintenance due? Are they finding check engine lights, scratches in the car? So we do a complete quality control audit. And over the years, these have gotten better and better as our training processes have gone better and better, but we hit you know, even with three new technicians at our new store, we hit 90% conformity in our in our courtesy inspection process during our QC check. Wow. So we started four years ago at like 75%. It was like, oh boy, I hope, right? <laughs> I think it would be for most shops, right? I think most shops, if they went through the time to do what you're doing, would have that same thing and it would open their eyes to a lot more than they're looking at right now. And the good thing is when we put the results on the board, we don't name the techs, but if we had a tech that missed 50% of the items another tech found, all we do is then go to their manager in a separate one-to-one meeting after the quarter meeting and go, Hey, this guy missed a whole bunch of stuff. Please re-inspect his inspections. Let's go through our processes. Let's retrain and and make sure we pay some extra attention to to this tech. He was way off. And our our team wants consistency because we do have customers that go store to store, right? You wouldn't want a customer getting an inspection at one store and then a whole different inspection at another store. That doesn't breed confidence. So I think the inspection process makes so much sense here to, to maybe dive into a little bit more because I think um, that's an easy one to point to as far as process implementation goes and execution. When when you look, how, how do you, walk me through that. How, how do you check an inspection, right? So is it just a customer's car that comes in or do you have a shop car that comes in and everybody sure. does the same inspection? So generally what we've done is since the meeting is at one location, there'll be a car there that a foreman has already inspected. And there'll be a foreman that's already inspected another car at another facility and a foreman that's inspected a car at another facility. And they'll bring all those cars to one facility. We'll rack them. And then what happens is there's a, been a baseline inspection done by our foreman who we consider, you know, our an expert and our expert and our controlled, controlled inspection, essentially. Then, 
because that car came from that shop where other guys might have seen it, they're assigned to a car from a different shop. And the other guys from that shop are assigned to a car from a different shop. And guys are assigned the cars. So they're only really doing one car inspection. This process takes them on an hour, hour and a half for our quarterly meet. So they do one car. And then we rank those results. Then we have a, a, you know, a car up front. And we may have pulled a wire so it has a check engine light. And that's our service writer's inspection. Are they starting the car? Are they noting the check engine lights? Are they noting it's due for an oil change by maintenance? Because we can put a sticker up in the dash or set another light off. Are they knowing, are they noticing that, you know, it's got a tire that's low when it comes in? Or, you know, what are our our sales staff doing on the check-in to make sure the techs are getting work pre-sold so the techs have the most work pre-sold before they even have to do their inspection? So we're checking our sales staff consistency. We have a loaner car check-in that our porters are doing because our porters generally check in our loaner cars. So is the car full of gas? Well, the check-in car isn't, you know. Is there a, you know, a scratch on the car? Well, we had a loaner car that was returned with a cracked windshield, right? That car is used for that check. Did the porters notice the windshield's cracked? Because that shouldn't be, shouldn't have gone out with a cracked windshield. So if it comes back with one, better be noted, right? So these are the things that we're checking all our systems. And so we're looking to make sure that people understand it's after that, generally, then we do, we lay out our core values of our company. And this is what we call our culture check that ties into our inspection and our QC process. We do an exercise called um, storyboarding. And so every employee is handed six, the eight post-it notes. And we ask every employee to write six to eight things that make a great place to work or a great shop. And so we have our core values that we haven't put on the board yet. We just want them to take those post-it notes, stick them on the wall any way, random as you want. We give them 10 minutes to come up with these ideas. We stick them on the wall. Then we put our core values up on the wall. Then we ask every employee, go find your post-it notes and see if they align with our core values of our company. And any outliers we talk about, okay, are we missing some values? But believe it or not, out of 30 people that were at this meeting, I think we had three things that somebody wrote that didn't fit within the core values of our company. And wow. it's a fun exercise because they can place things inside there. And, and, you know, integrity is one of our core values, right? And I would say there was probably 20 integrities that the employees had written down. It was a big thing for them. These are the things that, that we control and we measure and that we do exercises on, whether it be quarterly, whether it be, you know, our monthly manager leadership meetings. These are the things that we do that that really drive the results and, and teamwork that, that our company is so known for and why people want to come work for us. That's amazing. And so does it, do you see any redundancy in, in that exercise or is it people are thinking about it over the course of the next quarter and they're, they're trying to think of different things to be able to put on those post-it notes? The post-it note one, this is the first time we've done that one. So we have surprises. Okay. Another one we've done because the, the quarterly means are a time for us to go over our goals and numbers and where we're at, but we also do some fun exercises. Another one is, I borrowed this from uh, my buddy, Brian Sump, who I'm not sure love where he got Br- it. Love from. Brian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Brian's a good buddy of mine. Borrowed it from him. Another meeting, we've done the penny exercise, right? Everybody's getting two pennies. Every penny has a date on it, right? You have to tell something important that happened in your life on that date. <laughs> that would be hard. <laughs> in that year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to make sure, like, especially some of my guys, I got some young guys, I got to make sure that I don't have pennies before they're born, right? So I got right. sure newer, shinier pennies here for some of these guys, <laughs> but give them two random pennies and, and they got to come up with something that, that happened on that date in their life. Just some different exercises that, that we do during our quarterly meeting 
And obviously, you know, we had employees that were only with us three days that just started for this quarterly meeting. And so we do an introduction to them and, and, you know, they're, they're overwhelmed by this meeting. Our manager makes sure they usually pull them aside and go, you know, we're not expecting a lot. Just understand this is just part of what we do, but you know, you are part of the team now. So even though we've been here two days, welcome to the court, welcome to the gun show here, the quarterly meeting, this is going to be interesting, but that's, you know, we do that. And so we have, we, we definitely do have a culture that, that breeds some of these results and that, that people buy into, right? If you're not going to buy into that, you might not, you might not survive. In a time when it is, it's definitely tough for the majority of people to find people in their shops. How do you, how do you go about finding that culture fit? Is it as simple as just always looking for, for new talent to come into your shops or is it having a bench? Is it, you know, walk me through that process because I think a lot of shops get stuck and we see this again a lot where shops get desperate for help, right? And it's probably because they've not been overly proactive on trying to find talent. And then when their lead tech leaves, they're, they're, they're in trouble, right? They're in a lot of, lot of trouble. How, how do you go through that process of making sure that you've got good talent to come in that will buy into the process? Well, luckily, you know, I mean, it, it's, Luckily, you build in, they will come type of scenario. Yes. We have a good reputation, and I generally have talent waiting for me. We lost a lead tech that decided he wanted completely out of the industry. He took a job outside the industry, and, and we had a replacement for him within 20 days. Unfortunately, the replacement took a little longer than we wanted because it took 20 or 30 days because he was moving from Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm come work for us, but we generally have a pretty decent bench of people that want to come work for us because they, they, they hear what we do and they believe in what we do that. I don't have the problem. A lot of guys do, but I would say for most shops, you're always got to be recruiting. And I would say that, you know, attitude trumps talent nine times out of 10. Like I want somebody that's going to fit. And if you're not going to fit, you know, we have some that have flushed out or we thought we're going to be good fits and you find out down the road, they're not. And and you can't be afraid to move on because, you know, one, one sour apple can ruin the, the bushel pretty fast. Like, yes, we've had some techs that are pretty salty and, and that can permeate across a shop really, really, really fast. Oh my goodness. It is the worst thing that can happen to a shop. But when you get that bad apple in there, it, it doesn't take long for that attitude to spread. And it, when you're trying to get buy in the process, uh, I know at my dad's shop, they at one point had a a tech that just didn't want to do inspections, right? And they were in the process, this is a few years back, where they were in the process of going from the traditional paper inspection to a digital inspection. And this individual was a great tech, would, I mean, punch workout like nobody's business, but didn't want to do inspections, thought that they were trying to rip off customers. And and it was just, he wasn't going to change his mind regardless, right? And he ended up leaving as a result. But what they noticed was that when he left, the buy-in to doing the inspections got easier. The buy-in to doing, you know, the general attitude of the shop started to be uplifted. And it wasn't always just pessimism on uh, the front of the technicians. And, you know, he really was a leader in the shop. And when he was leading with that negative attitude, that changed the entire thing, the entire dynamic of that shop which makes it damn near impossible to implement process or anything else if you've got that. So I think t- this is my my opinion, but that is such a crucial hire 
from the standpoint of getting buy-in of the shop because a lot of techs will look to that that one person that's kind of the alpha in the shop and what they're doing. And if they're doing it the right way, I think it's easier for everybody else to come along. It is. And that's where the, that's, I and mean, we'll go back to some of my onboarding stuff. That's where the onboarding stuff has been so successful, right? If you're not believing in inspections and these things to start with, you're going to go, whoa, this is really dumb. I don't want to do this. And we're going to find out in the onboarding process because it's trained in from, from the start. And if somebody's really kicking back, then they might not even make the first 90 day probationary period. My staff, no, you know, <laughs> not going to happen. And that's why everybody's hired with a 90 day you know, probationary period, but we generally bring in, if we're bringing a new tech in, we bring them in generally for a quick working interview and it doesn't consist of them fixing cars. We want them to do an inspection. We want to see how they work, what their process is. Then we generally have a team lunch. So I'll buy lunch, bring it in and they sit with the team. And at that point we've had techs go, no. Okay. But we've had techs. We've also had techs go, I really, really want this thing, you know, and it it goes both ways. Right. So if you don't have a good culture and you don't have a tech, that's going to fit your culture, you're going to have problems. Yeah. And it it doesn't mean that that tech is necessarily a bad tech or a bad employee. He just might not be a good fit for what you do and the way you do things. And so the way my company does things and the way I do it is not the same as every other company. And that's perfectly fine. That tech that left me might be a great fit for them. It just means it wasn't a fit for for my system. And you're setting the tone immediately, which is what I love. So when when you're hiring somebody, they know where your stance is on everything and the way you do things. And even if that's different than how they do things, knowing that, hey, by signing up to work here, you're you're doing it our way like we we have to do it this way to maintain that consistency and that consistent customer satisfaction you know it, that you mentioned it earlier in the podcast consistency is the key to all of this yeah consistency is is very important and that's something we strive for now are we perfect at it no nobody is right we have our falters um, our onboarding processes our falters where our our team goes around it because they are busy and and they they are under the gun for results right i mean that's any business they're expected to return results and they get under the gun and they falter on the process and that's where it's our job as leaders to step back in and go, and call our other leaders out and go come on no and 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 that's a difficult thing sometimes right because they bring up valid excuses and you're right. You're busy. You're under the gun. There's work to be done. You know, do you want a strong month or do you want your guy onboarded correctly is what they come back with. And it's like, I understand, but if you're so overwhelmed, reach out to us above because maybe I can come in and show them the test drive route, or maybe I can come in and help with some onboarding stuff. Or maybe Daniel can come cover, you know, the front so that you can help him with the back that, you know, reach on help, ask for help, but, don't make an arbitrary decision that's outside our guidelines. And so that's when you have to reel them back in because it's going to happen, right? You can have the perfect processes, but if you don't have some accountability to people to make sure they follow it. Nothing ends up happening either. What I love about what you just said was your response to that, which was what can we do to help? Like, okay, if you're overwhelmed, what is it that we, you know, can we come in and, and help you out? And I think, one, that shows you're on the same team, right? It's not just saying, hey, get these results and do it my way, but I'm not going to help. Like if you're offering your, you know, something like 
taking a, a, a test drive and showing them the route, that that could save that person a half an hour that could go towards something else. So I think, you know, being being able to keep your ears open as a leader is hugely impactful too, right? And being able to understand, okay, this person is truly overwhelmed. We, we need to help them out. Are, are you able to kind of quickly identify those times when somebody's like, you're, you're like, yeah, that, that person is flat out just overwhelmed. I'm not because I'm not as day-to-day involved. Daniel sometimes can. He's my COO and he will sometimes pick up on it. But it's really trying to tell our team guys, hey, reach out if you need something. Like reach, reach out and tell us because we don't know. We assume you're okay unless you tell us otherwise. So, you know, sometimes they're too proud to and sometimes we just got to keep reminding them like, look, okay, reach out. Like we have a short test drive route and a long test drive route every store. We train a test drive route because if a tech doesn't return, we know where to find them. There's two routes. <laughs> we know where we're going to find that broken down car in the tech. Maybe you forgot his cell phone. Maybe it's yeah. a dead spot or maybe there's a car accident. We don't know if a tech doesn't come back. We want them on two different routes. We want to know where to find them. And if they have to deviate from that route because we have to run a certain test, then they just usually inform us, hey, I got to run the freeway. And, and we know where they're generally going to be at if they run the freeway but sure we have a, a short and a long test drive route and that's something like if my shop foreman's overwhelmed hey i could have done that for you you know let's not skip the onboarding process to, to do that right yeah you, you don't want to you want to skip that process because that's going to result in more long-term pain as a whole i completely agree with that now how long have you been in shop your shop ownership role like, so in owning a shop, when, when did you start the first one or when did you take over the first one? Sure. I came, I came about 2005, 2006 as the, as the manager of the shop. So, and then I completely bought them out mid end of 2012 where I was running everything from then. So I've fully been a hundred percent owner of, of the shop since 2012. So from there, how did you start to get these kind of tentacles into the business, right? To kind of put your own spin on this, or was it, was it already a shop that was kind of fully bought into this stuff or was it something where you had to transition uh, them to, to really understand that, you know, process was going to be important to you? Our our process is pretty important just because we've learned over the years that it's, it's too hard to do things without it. And, you know, just if you, verbalize something and it doesn't happen, then you're frustrated that you thought they heard you, but they didn't really hear you. And so our process has evolved from frustrations of not getting results and frustrations of both parties. And then you're just having wars internally that, that nobody understands why they're mad at each other. Right. It's like, right. It's like the, the holy wars that happen across the world that nobody <laughs> even knows why they're the Hatfield McCoys, right? You read the books at the end. Nobody knows why they're being mad at each other three generations down the road, but they're still mad at each other. And that can happen internal in a shop, right? You don't even know why you're mad at each other and you're still mad at each other. And you're like, why are we mad at each other again? Right. Well, you said, right. oh, okay. Well, now, so that's where we came. That's where my other manager said, okay, now we're going to verbal or written over verbal communication always. It's not written down. It doesn't matter. It never happened. And, and so that's that, where we really started working on through stuff. Did that happen before you took over ownership or after? That happened after. After. Because the previous owner, you know, we just kind of did things and we got things done. And, you know, he ran an old school shop and he knew where everything. So John Maxwell's law of the lid, 
Yep. Very, very critical thing. His law lit a leadership was knowing every car in the shop at every single moment. So he only allowed the shop to grow as big as he could control. Which you put and a it, big cap on it. Yeah. Yeah. And it drove him absolutely nuts that I couldn't tell him every car in the shop, what everything was going on. As we started growing, it drove him nuts and that's fine. <laughs> There's nothing wrong. He did a very good job, ran a very good business. He taught me a lot. He, he would find every penny in accounting. The guy was an accounting genius, right? Which is something I didn't know anything about. I learned so much from him, sure. but there's some things he did well. And there's some things he didn't do well. So as, as you're looking at this and you see the need for process and everything from onboarding to how you're doing your, your daily tasks, your d- daily routines, was there any initial uh, kind of pushback from your team when you started implementing this or was it to, to get the culture to where it's at today? How much of a struggle was it? Or maybe it wasn't a struggle to get, to get complete buy-in of that initial shot. That's going to be a struggle. I would say probably one out of the initial seven or eight people I had are now with the company. Okay. So there, there is a change. If you want to make a wholesale change, will probably cost you some people. And you have to be very willing to do that. I got a couple of friends that have gone through the same process, right? Like you, you're going to have the people that are entrenched in the old way of doing things and they're not going to want to change. You know, the saying it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks is, is relatively true when you have somebody that's entrenched. And if you want to make a wholesale change within your company, it's probably going to cost you some people. I have a couple of people that, that made through the change and a couple of people that never bought in and that roadblock had to go. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. I never like to lose people. I, I, in fact, we, we generally hate firing people. Most people self-select out now, right? but before that we did have to get rid of some people to get the changes that we wanted. And that I think culture is an easy buzzword to throw out there and, a lot of people talk about it, but not a lot of people talk about the struggles you have to go through to get that that core fundamental culture, right? Because mm-hmm. if you don't get the the current staff to buy in, you're probably your onboarding process isn't isn't going to be able to match up to that. Because if the people in the shop currently aren't doing those processes, and then you're onboarding somebody a different way and saying, okay, these are the processes that we do. This is what we follow. This is how we do it. Uh, and then it doesn't reflect that once they get in the shop, it's all for not, right? And I think that's such an important piece to take out of this is that, you know, we talk a lot about culture and and sometimes at nauseum, I think, it, where it, the importance of how it relates to a shop and you're not able to go through all of this onboarding process, I assume, without having your shop in in order prior to, to being able to change your the way that you're onboarding. Correct. Yes. You have to have your shop in order to, to get an onboarding process or people go around it and people still go around it. Right. I mean, I've laid out a couple examples and in, in two different calls had one yesterday, right. Where I was just telling you about I, people go around it. it you got to hold them accountable and say, let's get back on, on, on par here. And then that's a, that's a big, that's a big struggle with it. it. It takes evolving as a leader, right. You know, start with why was a big book for us. There's just all sorts of things you read. And you go through, and if you're not constantly reading books as a leader, then you're in trouble. And a lot of it is working on your leadership skills. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And it took me a couple of years to say, okay, I got to 
fix a bunch of things. I, you know, I work with Transformers Institute, Greg, and those guys are great. I've great worked with bunch, Cecil. Yeah, yeah. I've worked with Cecil Bullard before at the Institute. He was one of our coaches in the 20 group. I'm in Greg's mastermind group now, but I mean, I'm in a Vistage group. You know, I would, I would venture to say, I, I think I ran the numbers. I'm 35 or $40,000 a year and in CEO development costs is what it takes to keep me sharp and do the things that I need to do. But it took me a long time to get there. So, I mean, there's a lot of small shops or one or two man shops and, you know, you can get there. It's just, it's tough to make the initial change. And the initial change starts with you and getting your stuff together and making sure that you can push your beliefs and and what your vision is out to your company. And if you can't get your vision going, you know, that's, that's a problem. I was listening to a John Maxwell podcast and, you know, there is no vision without the right team, right? There is no vision without money either. He says those two words a lot. If you don't, you can have all the vision and dreams in the world, but if you don't have the right team, you're never going to get it done. And if you identify that you don't have the right team and you don't make changes, then you're going to be internally frustrated with your dream and vision because it'll never come to fruition. Yeah, that's, that's powerful stuff. I, and for those of you listening out there, you hit on another really key point there, Seth, which is the importance of coaching. And none of us know all the answers to everything, right? And being able to be open to be coached, which can be a little bit different when you're in an ownership role because you're not used to being told maybe what to do or what, you know, being being coached in general, right? But the impact I've seen on businesses that have really bought into coaches and been open to their open to their communication, open to you know, their recommendations, they've been better businesses as a result. And that in most cases that I've seen, not just a little bit better, like way better. And and I think it, if nothing else, I told my dad this, my dad has a coach. And I said, if, if that person does nothing more than gets you to look at your financials every week, it's worth the money, but they've brought so much more to the table. And I know Greg and, and his crew out there do a phenomenal job of doing that same exact thing. Just great people. And, and um, I guess maybe one thing I would ask is there are a few coaching options out there. Would you give any advice to a, a shop owner as, in terms of being able to select what kind of coach or who they should pick as a coach You know, yep. when they're looking? Yeah, I think you have to interview them all. I think you have to find one that that can jive with you. And, and, you know, sometimes the one you like the most might not be the one that pushes you to do what you need to do. You know, I've used Cecil early on, who does a great job with teaching your numbers. If you don't understand your KPIs and where to move the needle, you don't even need to, you don't understand anything about where you need to go. And he's really, really numbers based. I mean, if you don't understand your numbers, he will teach you your numbers beyond belief. And then, you know, Greg is really good at the Transformers and the Mastermind group where 15 brains are stronger in one. And we're getting, you know, you get 15 or 20 people in a group and you bounce ideas off each other. And there's no real leader per se. Greg facilitates, does an awesome job of that. But you're really, you're really brainstorming with your fellow shops. And, but that takes being a little more mature in your business. They can help you get there too, with some of their one-on-one coaching. There's just a, a myriad of options. Some guys really like Aaron Stokes. Aaron Stokes is really big on change the leader, change the person. Some guys like Aaron and and Aaron might be a fit depending on what you're looking for. But I think you got to get out there and talk to all the coaches um, and find out what, you know, what do you need most for me? You know, I like, I like some of the other coaches, but I really didn't need a change in my mindset. I was already, you know, reading and learning. And, and that's been a constant thing that I've done throughout my career, whether it be management or technical or anything, I'm always, 
I probably always am reading or learning. I probably couldn't tell you the latest TV show that's out because I don't know. And I probably don't listen to that much music. So he asked me my favorite music and my wife will tell me whatever podcast is on his on his thing and it drives her nuts she's like can we just listen to something else i'm like just bring your just bring your iphone with your headphones because we're driving and probably listening to this sorry it drives, I'm her, the same it drives way. her nuts i'm the same way and it i i i tell a lot of people that's had the most impact on my life is when i had a mentor early on that kind of poked fun at me for not reading and not you know not honestly as a young in my early twenties, I didn't even know that these kind of books were out there. Right. Like I just thought it was weird that there was a self self group in or area in Barnes and Noble. But once you start to see what's out there and when that hits, like there's so much you can learn and there's so much that applies to your day-to-day business. My hardest part is not trying to implement everything in the same day. Right. Like you read something like, Oh, this is cool. Like let's go do it. And I, I think being able to, to temper that and, Really build. Oh, don't, uh, don't don't yeah. don't temper that. Read Rocket Fuel and figure out how to do that because Daniel has books of. He says he has seven or eight notebooks of Seth's crazy ideas. And the problem he goes if Seth says that same idea three or four times, he goes, "Crap, we're actually gonna do that one." <laughs> that is amazing. That is really cool. Well, I I truly I thank you for coming on, talking about onboarding, talking about processes. I I feel like you are the leader in the clubhouse in terms of an independent shop that's doing it the right way, doing a lot of things the right way, not just onboarding, but uh, the whole plethora of expanding to multiple locations and, and, uh, and really truly being a CEO rather than, you know, just kind of a day-to-day putting fires out type of person. So uh, I appreciate you taking some time out of your incredibly busy schedule to join me today. And, and uh, it's, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. A lot of fun. Went by fast.